0: If you would take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a black, hardbound Bible somewhere nearby in the pew, and Luke chapter 2 begins on page 857 of that Bible. Now we come to this account of the birth of Jesus, not only because today is Christmas Eve, but because just over a month ago we began a journey that will take us all the way through the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, I mean, it is packed with all kinds of things, isn't it? Angelic visits and miraculous uh, pregnancies and songs of praise. And it all leads us to this moment, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Spirit says to us. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to Your Word and we ask You by Your Spirit, would You speak to our hearts? Would You take familiar words and stir up fresh affection for the Lord Jesus, fresh praise for You and for what You have done for us in Christ? Speak, O Lord, as we come to You to receive the food of Your holy word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There is a certain rhythm to the Christmas season. Uh, The decorating of homes, the decorating of stores starts back in July, but we are going to ignore that for a moment. Uh, The decorating of homes, uh, the attending parties, gathering with family, eating special foods, sharing traditions, card-sending, gift-giving, movie-watching, and all with its own Christmas soundtrack. Some years are marked by great joy. Other years are marked by great grief. And many years are marked by both. But there is a rhythm to the Christmas season. You may not experience all these things every year, but it's part of the rhythm of Christmas, and it can be great. But sometimes, I mean, I just overheard two women at a coffee shop Thursday morning saying this very thing, sometimes people are just trying to get through the season. They're just getting it done. Christmas is like a six-week-long to-do list. Giving is a business where I just need you to send me a link so I can click and pay. Decorating is a chore. Christmas parties are obligations. Family gatherings are endured rather than enjoyed. Special meals are just work and not really special at all. The rhythm of Christmas is just another responsibility, and your heart's not in it. And when it's over, you let out a sigh of relief so you can get back to real life. Well, as there is a rhythm to Christmas, there is a rhythm to the Christian life. There are daily rhythms and weekly rhythms and monthly rhythms and even yearly rhythms, rhythms of prayer and Bible reading, rhythms of corporate worship, giving, serving, fellowship with the church family. We have a monthly rhythm of taking the Lord's Supper to remember Jesus' death, the annual rhythm of Good Friday and Easter. But there is a far greater danger, isn't there, to our heart not being in this rhythm. If the Christian life becomes a mere responsibility, if meaningful routines become empty ruts, if our heart's not in it, we're not just missing the joy of a season, we're missing the joy of our Savior. And so as we come back to Luke's gospel to look at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ yet again, let's be on our guard Let's not see rehearsing this story again as a mere obligation, as something you're supposed to do because it's December. Let's not get done and let out a sigh of relief so we can get back to real life. Let's join the shepherds and marry and rejoice in the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this story, it It seems important to make sure we understand that sometimes we overlook things that are in the story, and sometimes our imagination adds things that are not actually in the story. Like the idea of this cruel, cold-hearted innkeeper who turned away Mary and Joseph. He ain't there. They didn't go into the Holiday Inn Express, and they send him out. so, let's look again. Let's try to see what Luke wants us to see about Jesus' birth, because in seeing what Luke wants us to see, we will see what God wants us to see about the birth of Jesus. The first thing I want us to notice is that Jesus' birth happens by providence, by providence. Look at the first few verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town." The birth of Jesus happens by providence. Now providence is the idea… we talk about God's sovereignty, and God's sovereignty is that attribute of God wherein He is absolute, has absolute power and absolute control. And in a sense, providence is sovereignty in action, sovereignty governing the affairs of men, sovereignty governing the circumstances of our lives, sovereignty orchestrating all of human history. And so as we read these things, what we actually read without God's name even appearing in the first three verses is that God is quietly at work. Now, it may not seem like it. This may just look like a historical background, but we have to remember that God is the God of history and that God rules over every ruler in history. Proverbs 21 tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And we see examples of this in the Old Testament, don't we? So the king of Assyria goes and conquers the northern kingdom of Israel. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Years later, goes and conquers the southern kingdom of Judah. King Cyrus, and he takes the Jews into exile. King Cyrus then comes to power. Persia defeats Babylon, and King Cyrus releases the Jews from exile so they can go back to their home. And behind all of it is the hand of God. Each of those kings is called a servant of God. All their decisions are used for God's sovereign purposes to move history as He wants. And so having that in our minds, as we come to read about Caesar Augustus taking a census to get more tax money, behind Caesar is the Caesar of all Caesars, is the king of all kings, Behind Caesar Augustus is the hand of God. Look what happens. I mean, verse 4 tells us that Joseph goes to Bethlehem because he belongs to David's family, and he takes Mary with him. But friends, this isn't just a matter of taxes, and it isn't just a nice vacation. We shouldn't think that Joseph just got an idea one day, you know, that this, this would be a sweet and sentimental thing, wouldn't it? If we just travel across the country with you nine months pregnant, wouldn't that just be sweet and sentimental? Isn't that just the greatest thing ever? She was probably miserable on this trip. In December 2001, Susan and I drove in a U-Haul truck from Orlando, Florida, to Louisville, Kentucky. She was seven months pregnant with our second son, and our first son was in the car seat in between us on the ride. And every bump in the road seemed to want to jumpstart labor. It was awful. I don't know how I got through it. (laughs) Look, when you think about Mary and Joseph making this journey, don't think about how sweet they are. Think about how sovereign God is. God is moving history to move Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so he can keep his promise about the location of the Savior's birth. Micah chapter 5, God says through the prophet, "'But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days.'" You see, there's something in the background of this historical background. God is there, moving history. And friends, the God who moved history at that time is the God who still rules history today. He doesn't just rule history, capital H, where all the headlines are. He rules history, lowercase h, in your little world He is sovereignly working out His purposes even when things seem out of control. In the midst of wars, in financial crises, in seasons where being alone feels especially painful, in seasons of dealing with rebellious children, in the chemotherapy room at the hospital… Even at the graveside, God still rules, God still reigns, and God is still good. He is working all things for His glory and for our good, even when they don't look good. And the fact of the matter is, we cannot often tell how God is working when we look at today, right? All we see is the pain and the darkness and the chaos. Honestly, we sometimes wonder if God is working at all. But in God's kindness, there are these moments in life when we can sometimes look back over a season and see it, and see what God was doing. And it is a kind thing of the Lord when we can do that. But, friends, even if we can't, we need to remember that in the days there was a decree from Caesar Augustus that went out. And God was working when God wasn't even mentioned. And we can trust Him even when we can't see Him. The God who moves Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem moves us through many dangers, toils, and snares and will safely bring us home. So don't be discouraged. Don't throw in the towel because of your circumstances. Be encouraged because a God who is better than you can imagine and greater than you can imagine and wiser than you can ever fathom is at work. Jesus' birth happens by God's providence. Secondly, it happens in humility. Verses 6 and 7, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, again, do not sentimentalize this as if this was just a sweet little scene I mean, some people speculate this was actually a cave that they are in. Some people say it was probably more like a a lean-to shelter. It's quite likely it was in a very poor home where the domestic livestock actually shared the sleeping quarters with the family. So that rather than a bassinet next to the bed, Mary has a feeding trough. And it's here that the Son of God is born. Now, you see, in order to see the humility of this, we actually have to remember who it is that Jesus is. You see, all of us were created by God, and then we were born, right? Jesus was never created before He was born. He existed before He was born. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. He was with God in the beginning. He existed before time even began. Because Jesus, this baby, is God in the flesh. He is actually the creator of all things. John 1 goes on to say, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So what we have in this scene with this feeding trough is the creator of all things stepping into creation. The one with absolute power becoming vulnerable. The one who needs nothing becoming needy. The one who upholds all things becomes one whose mother must hold his head up. God in a feeding trough. Now, we often say if if you grew up in a home where your family was poor, somebody might say, you grew up with humble beginnings, right? But friends, this is a truly humble beginning because the Son of God humbles Himself to have this beginning. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, he was in the form of God but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, the humility we see in Jesus' birth is not humility that is thrust upon him. It is humility he willingly enters, emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men, coming to us. So, And when you look more carefully at Philippians 2, as we will actually next week when Chad preaches, you will see that what the Apostle is saying, he's not just describing the humility of Jesus, he's showing the humility of Jesus as an example of what we as Christians ought to be. That we ought to exhibit that kind of humility, humbling ourselves. Uh, 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 emptying our motives of all selfish ambition, thinking of others more highly than ourselves. I mean, I just want you to look back on your last year. How many personal conflicts would have been avoided? How many relationships wouldn't have gone sour? How much more glory would Jesus have received if we had been humble like that? Jesus is born in humility. But even more than an example for us, this humility is the only means by which He can come to save us, to come and be one of us. He comes humbly for our sake. And that's the third thing I want you to see, is that Jesus' birth happens for us, for us. In the next bit of the story, while Mary is swaddling baby Jesus, there are shepherds watching their flocks, and the night shift is interrupted by an angelic visit, beginning in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, He is pleased. Now, a great deal has been said about the fact that these angels come to shepherds, not to priests, not to prophets, not to kings, to shepherds. And that is certainly important. After all, in the first century, I mean, shepherding had been noble before when the people of Israel were more nomadic, but now it was looked down on. Shepherds were often considered unreliable and dishonest. Their testimony wasn't allowed in court. They were always unclean. They couldn't go into the temple as they were because of the nature of their work. In a sense, they represent the outcasts and sinners of society, the very people that Luke highlights in his gospel, the very people Jesus came for. He will later say, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now that's encouraging. Because it means Jesus came for us. Because no matter how down and out your life has gotten, no matter what mess you have made of your life, no matter how things have become an absolute train wreck, He came for you. He can save you. He will forgive you when you come to Him. It's amazing, isn't it? It's kind of like good news of great joy for all people. And as great as this is, there's something very basic, that I think we often go right past. And that's the fact that Jesus' birth has to be explained. It has to be explained. A baby born in poverty is not news of any kind. This probably isn't even the first time a manger has been used as a bassinet. No news anchor is going to announce a baby born in poverty on the 11 o'clock news. It happens all the time. So without any explanation, nobody would really know why this baby matters, why this birth matters. So he sends angels to make it clear. Verse 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, again, beware the warm fuzzies of seeing Linus in a Charlie Brown <laughs> Christmas special, right? That this is the only thing we think about when we hear this. We just, oh, we hear those words, and what we, the way we respond is to grab the remote, because I want to find it streaming somewhere and watch it. What's well, fine and good if you watch it, but it's not written down for that. Think about who the angel is saying this baby is, words that will never be used of any other baby. Jesus is the Christ, the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. It's a a title for kings in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the king of all kings. He is the greatest king. He is the king. Now, in the Old Testament, you'll remember as the monarchy is established, the people actually have to be warned about kings because kings are men who take. They'll take your sons, and they'll take your daughters, and they'll take your land, and they'll take your taxes. They'll take, take, take. But Jesus is a different kind of king, He comes to give. He gives forgiveness of sin. He gives eternal life. He gives hope. He gives peace. He gives joy. He gives love. He gives His life for us. He came to give. He is the Christ. Jesus is Lord, the angel says, a Savior who is The Lord, He is ruler, He is master, He is in charge, He is the one who must be obeyed because He is God. In fact, the Greek word that's used here for Lord is the one that Luke always uses when he is speaking of God. He is Lord. He is Christ. It is declared here by the angels in this private little discussion that we have written down, but it is publicly declared, isn't it, at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that God has made Him both Lord and Christ by raising Him from the dead. He is Lord and He is Christ and He has come. save us. He is the Savior. Now, that doesn't just say something about Jesus. That says something about us. Unto you is born this day a Savior. Now, I want you to imagine waking up tomorrow morning if you exchange gifts on Christmas morning. Whenever it is you exchange gifts, I want you to imagine sitting down to do that. And the first gift that you open up is a pair of running shoes. Didn't ask for them, but great. Who doesn't need another pair of running shoes? And then a series of boxes contain workout clothes, and you're starting to get suspicious (laughs) until you reach down into your stocking and you pull out a gift certificate for a gym membership. the one who gave you those things is saying something. You need to work out. And here's what you need to do that. Well, when God says through the angel, I'm giving you a Savior, He's actually saying something about us, about the world. He's saying we need to be saved. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, there's really no understanding of Jesus' birth or understanding who He is without understanding that He is a Savior and that we are the ones who need to be saved. Our sins separate us from Him. It causes a break in our relationship that we can't fix. It puts a chasm between us that we can't cross. Our sin leaves us guilty before God, liable to His judgment, deserving His wrath, with no way to escape it, no way to get out from under our guilt. But that doesn't stop us from trying, Right? We try to fix our relationship with God by being better. I'm going to be better this time. I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to tack on some religious activity. God will surely take me back if I become more religious, if I go to more church services. And we try to rid ourselves of guilt, don't we? We try to escape it and we try to silence our conscience in any way possible, sometimes in things we think are healthy and sometimes in ways that are very destructive, don't we? We try to rid ourselves of guilt. We try to silence our conscience. We try to shift the blame to someone else. We try to do anything to get away from the guilt. We'll even tell ourselves, just don't even listen. Don't even listen to any thought inside my head that says, I am guilty. And if I won't listen to me, I will go and I will pay large amounts of money to sit across the table from someone who will tell me I'm not really the problem. It's my parents. It's my past. It's my boss. It's my friends. It's my illness. It's my financial trouble. And we will run. We will run from the idea of being guilty. And we'll try to fix it ourselves. But the fact of the matter is that no matter what we do, we cannot reconcile ourselves to God. We can't do anything to free ourselves from guilt. And you know what? As much as we deny it when the lights are on, when the lights are off and our head is on the pillow and all the noise of activity and all the noise of my phone goes away and all the noise of everything goes away, I know it. I know I am in a predicament that I cannot do anything about. I need someone else to do something. And friend, that's why Jesus came, to do the something that you could never do. And that's when these words about a Savior born in a manger, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, becomes good news of great joy to our soul. When we finally realize, I cannot fix my relationship with God. I am not okay. I am guilty. I need a Savior. Bowing our knees like that is the first step toward Christ, to know, I can't do it. He is Lord. He is Christ. He is Savior. And upon hearing all of this and hearing the angels sing, the shepherds take off to see everything for themselves and... And then the response to all of this wondrous news comes one verse after the other. In verse 18, the people are left in awe and wonder at what they have heard. In verse 19, Mary treasures up all these things in her heart. That word treasures up. It doesn't mean she just enjoyed it. It means she guarded it. She held on to it. She clung to it. She let it roll around in her thoughts. Roll around in her heart, thinking about all that God had done. And in verse 20, the shepherds go away with a new song in their mouth. They go back to work. I mean, you've got to wonder what are they talking about? Are they sitting around the campfire singing the song that the angels just sang to them? Maybe they're talking about how heaven has come to earth all because of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. How does your heart respond to all that? How does your heart respond to good news of great joy? Are you left in awe? Are you eager to glorify and praise God? Does it leave you Pondering all that God has done in Christ and wanting to hang on to it. Or maybe you hear all of that and your heart's not in it. Oh friend, if your heart's not in it, it's time to turn to the Lord. It's time to repent. Whether it's for the first time or whether it's because you've wandered away from the joy of your salvation. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. May we rejoice in the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before You in awe of what You have done to bring Jesus Christ, the way that You moved human history so that You would keep Your promise that He might be born in Bethlehem. Lord Jesus, we are humbled by the humility you displayed in order to save us. We do ask that you would help us by your Spirit, Lord, to do likewise, to consider others more important than ourselves, to empty ourselves of ourselves that we might glorify you. And we thank You, Lord, for coming in the person of Jesus as the King of all kings, who did not come to take but to give His life as a ransom for many, for all who would trust in Him. Thank You for giving us a Savior. May our hearts rejoice in His coming, may our hearts rejoice in His salvation, and may our mouths proclaim it to others. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Would you stand? The praise team is going to come and we're going to sing together. After all of this, what more could we do than to turn our eyes on the one who was born?